I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, which is where we find ourselves today. Give you a bit of a recap of where we're at. We're walking through basically the missionary journeys of Paul, and then as it gets later in the book, we'll hit Paul's arrest and trial and his trip to Rome. But we'll be following the travels of Paul for a good bit here as we finish up the book of Acts. Kind of what's happened so far since we began this series is we see Paul go out on a missionary journey. They, they go through some towns, plant a few churches, and head back to headquarters in Antioch. And a controversy begins about what must someone do to be saved. Is it Jesus plus anything, or is it just faith in Jesus? And so to answer the question, they all get together, all the church leaders in Jerusalem, and that's in Acts chapter 15, where we begin to hear the clarification that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And then a letter is written up to go to these new churches to communicate again the point that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And then there are a few extra things, words of wisdom given to them to maintain unity in the church as well as the purity of the church. And so that letter then is written and then we find the Apostle Paul heading out to deliver those instructions to the churches that he had previously founded, as well as beginning some new churches. And so that's where we find things in Acts chapter 16. What had happened just previous is that, is that Paul and Barnabas, who had been companions on the previous trip, have disagreed over who to bring with them, and they've split ways. And so we find Paul and Silas... They hit up Lystra and Derby, which is kind of a repeat visit for Paul, where they pick up a guy named Timothy, who we'll kind of see woven throughout the story of the New Testament. There's even a couple letters in the Bible addressed to him, First and Second Timothy. So he becomes a prominent person, and he's along for the journey. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 16, verse 11. But all of that kind of brings us up to speed. So if you look at verse 11... He says, from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace and the next day to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so that's the beginning. When they hit Philippi, this is what they find. So I'll give you maybe a few things that might be helpful to know about the city of Philippi. It is the hub for the Roman government in the region of Macedonia, something like the county seat or the state capital. It's where all the Roman officials in the region were headquartered and ran the operations through it. Would have been the primary source of the military encampment there in the region. And then from there, they would head out to deal with smaller issues. So it's the state capital, roughly. So Philippi is also a leading city in commerce because it finds itself right on a highway, and if you need Latin to feel good today, called the Via Ignatia, or the Ignatian Way, if you want English, um, that was kind of connected the west part in Rome to the east part of the empire. So it's kind of stationed essentially on I-10 as it runs east and west through the empire. And because of that, it's a pretty much a hotbed for commerce. 
A lot of business and merchants and importing and exporting all taking place in the city called Philippi. And what Paul would do as he went into a new town to proclaim the gospel, he would immediately look for a synagogue. That was his pattern. He would go first to the Jews, proclaim the good news that the Messiah had come. And at the point they rejected the message, he would then go to the Gentiles to proclaim the message as well. And so as he normally does, Paul goes looking for a synagogue, but he doesn't find one. What instead he finds is a place of prayer outside of town where it's predominantly women gathering. And so one of the things you learn right away is this town is almost entirely pagan. They worship the Roman gods, which involves all sorts of idolatry and immorality. There's only a handful of people who worship the God of the Bible in Philippi. Additionally, what we find is almost exclusively women gathering there. And I don't say that to be critical of women, but one of the things, if you look at a culture and you find an absence of godly manhood, you will typically find a culture that is completely upside down and in disarray. And that's what they find in Philippi, is a community that is completely devoid of understanding God rightly and pagan. And so that's where they land. When they get there, they find this woman named Lydia who was a dealer in purple cloth. So Lydia was a businesswoman who sold fabric, particularly purple fabric. So a little bit of what that tells us about Lydia is that she mostly dealt with a high-end clientele. Purple fabric was more expensive than other fabrics because the dye was much more costly. That's why you hear purple as the color of royalty. So wealthy and noble families, the aristocracy could afford this. To be honest, in this time period, very few people could afford more than one to two garments to wear. Most people were incredibly poor, yet this woman sells purple cloth. So she deals with the high-end clientele. We also see that she appears to run the business and the household, which means one of two things occurred. Either she had been married and her husband had left her, or he had died. See, if she had never been married, she wouldn't be the head of a household. She would still be under her father. But at some point she was married and now doesn't appear to have a husband in the picture because she seems to run the business and the household. So whatever it is, functionally she's a widow, whether that was through abandonment or losing a husband. And so we find this lady, Lydia, there. She hears Paul's preaching. Now, Acts 16 doesn't tell us what Paul said. It just says she... Her ears were open to hear the message. If you flip back with me to Acts chapter 13, I want to give you a sample of essentially what he would say almost in every city. And we're going to look at kind of his summary point in verse 38 so we understand the preaching that Lydia heard. In verse 38, he finishes by saying, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from the, by the law of Moses. And so that's the summary point of his teaching. If you look at the Apostle Paul's teaching and preaching and writing, what you find over and over again is him saying, because of Jesus, His death on the cross and His resurrection, those who believe in Him are justified, are declared not guilty from everything that trying to follow the law couldn't do for them. He says you could work really hard all day and try to do the right things, but in the end you falter. And because of that, you need forgiveness. You stand before God to receive judgment. And so he comes proclaiming Jesus having taken the judgment that we deserved so that by faith in him we can be forgiven. In every city, this is what Paul preaches. 
It's reasonable to expect this is what he preached here. Lydia hears that. And the Holy Spirit does something in her heart to enable her to hear the message. Look at what the text says. It says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. This means in her state, in her natural state, as with all of us, her heart was closed to the message and it required God, by His Holy Spirit, opening it and enabling her to believe it. See, the reality is is that none of us rightly respond to God absent His grace through the Holy Spirit moving into our lives. None of us respond to God rightly. That's why God has to open our hearts to hear it. I want you to look at Romans chapter 1 with me to, to see this theology that's, that's at play. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and then we'll, then we'll switch over to chapter 3. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So it says, look, you guys, you you see God, you look around, you, you have evidence of God, But in your sinful nature, all of us respond by suppressing that truth. We respond by rejecting it. And because of that, our hearts are darkened. And then in Romans chapter 3, he begins to elaborate. These are Bible verses that no one ever puts on a t-shirt or a coffee cup. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Not on a t-shirt. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless, and there is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of viper is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the Scripture's assessment of humanity is that none of us seek God. None of us see God either in the Scriptures or in creation or in the proclamation of the Gospel. None of us see God and respond rightly absent the Spirit's work to soften our cold, hard, dead hearts. And so what we find here is God at work performing the miracle of bringing this woman's heart to life. Ephesians describes this well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. So because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So I want you to look at this. I want you to see what plays out in Lydia's heart as well as the heart of everybody who's ever believed and what is needed to happen in the heart of those who do not for them to come to faith is that God takes this heart which is dead, hard, and unable to hear the gospel and rightly respond and He softens it. He awakens it. He brings it to life so that you can believe and respond rightly to God. 
In our sinful nature, we will always push, rail, move against, reject, and detach ourselves from God. Because in the end, none of us like the idea that we'd ever be held accountable for anything and that there is someone over us. In the end, we all want to be our own gods. And absent a moving of the Holy Spirit to break us, bring us to humility, we will not believe. And so the Holy Spirit moves in and it says it enables Lydia. It opens her heart to receive the gospel. And so this amazing miracle of God through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, takes place in Lydia's life. And she receives the gospel. And then she is baptized. It says her whole family was baptized at that day. And she invites Paul and Silas and Timothy to come to her home. And the first life group is born there in Philippi. Then we find another story as they pick up. We kind of see a few different things happen. This trip to Philippi is a bit of a wild one. The Apostle Paul goes around preaching and there there he finds a demonically possessed girl. Let's look at verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, so back out by the river again to, to speak with the believers in God, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And she earned a great deal of money for her own owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became troubled. Uh, some translations say annoyed. Came troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they're headed out to the river and they're going to meet again with the believers. They're going to again share the gospel and a a slave girl who the text tells us was, was possessed by a demon, and then that, that demon gave her the ability to tell the future. This slave girl is, is a bit obnoxious and interfering with Paul's ministry. And so Paul finally just gets sick of it and says, Seriously, shut up. In the name of Jesus, get out of her. And she leaves. The Spirit leaves her. Well, then she can't tell fortunes anymore. Which is a real problem if you own stock in her business. Now you are in the red. I want to just talk for a moment about fortune telling. And we'd say, why are we? Well, it's here. So let's just say what the Bible says about it. The Bible clearly rejects, condemns this practice of consulting the dead, seances, spirits, tarot cards, uh, any technique you've got of trying to divine the future God is opposed to. If you want to look it up later, you can look to Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 19. God is opposed to this practice. And I want to 
kind of share why. And we see it in this story. This woman has some spiritual ability to see the future. It appears that, that she can do it. In some circles, we would call it a gift, except that along with the gift comes being tormented by demons. And so she has the capacity to tell the future because evil spirits torment her. And so when you go to the tarot card reader, at the very best you're getting ripped off, at the very worst you're toying with demons. God doesn't want us to do that. God doesn't want us opening doors for evil spirits to have influence or oppression in our homes. Now as Christians, we don't... We cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. The Holy Spirit resides within us and He is stronger. But we can welcome demonic influence into our homes through this kind of foolishness and nonsense. And some of y'all are going to go, why is he talking about it? We all know this. Well, I don't know that that's the case. I want to give you something. In 2009, the Pew Research Center, which is not a Christian group, but they do a lot of useful research that gives us a lot of insight into the religious beliefs of Americans. Some of this will astound you. So in 2009, this is what they said about Christians that they surveyed. 29% believe they had had contact with the dead. Some kind of seance or ghostly experience. 17% believe they had seen a ghost. 14% regularly consulted psychics. 23% believed in spiritual energy in rocks, trees, and crystals. 23% believed in astrology. So 23% of Christians, listen to this, they read that silliness in the newspaper that applies to everyone. If you read that, anyone in the world could meet that definition. 23% of Christians read fortune cookies and are dumb enough to believe it. That's what that says. And I don't know if that's a testimony to the grace of God saving stupid people or just that we have not been educated as a church. 22% of Christians believe in reincarnation, which means that 22% of Christians are dead wrong. All, you look at this and you say, why is he talking? We know that tarot card readers are silly, that it's a lady with a glass eye and a funny hat and, and a creepy deck of cards. No, you're toying with demons when you do this. And if the numbers are right, this section over here messes with psych. I'm just kidding. But that's about the percentage. That's how it works out. The Bible's opposed to this. And I want to just tell you blatantly why. One is that you're playing with demons. And two is that our trust for tomorrow is to be in Jesus. Not our ability to try to see the future and control things. And that's at root the problem here is that it haywires the faith relationship of trusting the Father and what He's done for us in Christ. We're to trust God for tomorrow, not the lady with the tarot cards. And I've seen in people I dearly love decisions made based off of a psychic reading and how that's wrecked families. And I will tell you from first-hand experience watching some things play out that this is straight from the pit of hell. And if you toy with this, you are bringing destruction into your home. You're not interacting with a dead relative. She can't see the future. You're playing hopscotch with a demon. And so Paul casts this woman out this demon out of this woman, and, and she experienced freedom. I think it's reasonable to believe that she became a Christian as she was delivered by the name of Jesus. I don't think it's an odd assumption to think that this early church now consists of Lydia, her family, and this slave girl that used to be a fortune teller. See, but God's got another family He wants to bring into the core group here at this new church. 
and this guy's a jailer. And so the only real way to, to get to interact with the jailer, to spend some time with him, is to send the apostles where? To jail. And so as we all know, no good deed goes unpunished. They are beaten in the city square because they have ruined the investment of some people. And so they're thrown into jail. And the story with the jailer begins in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all at once the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had to come to believe, he and his whole family. So the church is building steam. Now we have a widowed businesswoman, a slave who was possessed by a demon, and a jailer and his family. Ragtag bunch that God's going to do some impressive things through. So we look at this story. We find them there in prison. And what are they doing after being severely beaten and locked in the stocks? But praising God. And says everyone else in prison could hear them. Now, i got to be honest. Sometimes uh, when we go to restaurants... Uh, my kids want to sing this little song we do before meals. We do it at home. We sing it loud, and that's okay. Uh, we go to restaurants, and they want to sing, God, our Father. Do you know that song? Once again. Anyway, so it's a little song we sing before. And they want to sing, in the re- and I get a little shy. I'm like, eh, no one wants to hear us sing here. Paul and Silas are just belting it out in prison in the middle of the night. Because God, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of being beaten and imprisoned for the gospel, God is their joy, the resurrection of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, seeing people transformed by the gospel is their joy, and they're unashamed. And so they sing loud, and they praise God, and at that moment, an earthquake comes, and the doors fly open. And, and the earthquake somehow shakes their chains loose. And the jailer wakes up from his nap with the earthquake, believes everyone's gone, and is going to end it. And I don't know if he expected to be punished so severely that he might as well take out, go out on his own terms. I don't know what it is. But they say, hey, look, we're still here. And so he rushes in there. Now listen, he has heard the gospel. He's heard them because they've been there in prison loudly proclaiming Christ died for our sins, rose again, thanking God for the opportunity to suffer for him. And when that happens and he sees God move, this man says, what do I need to do to get what you have? What do I need to do to be saved? And they say, oh, it's, it's real simple. You trust in Jesus. You quit trusting all these false gods that you run around and worship. You quit trusting in yourself and your own ability to do things. Quit trusting in your own righteousness. Trust in Jesus alone and you'll be saved. And then he says, great! And he believes and he takes them home. And he tells the story to his whole family. And they're saved that night. 
And then they do something awesome. They immediately, in the middle of the night, go, let's get baptized. Is the city pool open? Can we go to the river? Run some water? Let's get baptized. Let's do it now. Maybe a few words about baptism since we're here. A lot of people will look at particularly the story of Lydia and the story of this jailer. And they will argue that that these whole families getting baptized is, is evidence in the Scripture or at least allowable in the Scripture to baptize infants. So I want to maybe address that in a minute. I think that what you find clearly in Scripture over and over again is that someone believes and makes the decision to be baptized. You think about baptism, right? It's a Greek word, baptizo, that we just kind of, what they call transliterated. We didn't actually translate it into the English Bible. We just kind of took it, put it with English letters. It means to dip or to dunk. And it's just mean to dunk a baby. That's the first thing you should know about infant baptism. It's mean to dunk babies. You shouldn't do that. You can do it at the pool, but you have to blow in their face first, right? And then, then they come up. But that's not what we do. We don't, we don't dunk babies. No one who does infant baptism does that. They, they sprinkle them, and it's intended to be a sign. I don't want to be harsh. We love them. They love Jesus. Uh, it, it's a sign of the commitment that we just made today with these two families. I say we want to raise this child in a godly home, in the presence of Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the, in the body of believers surrounding them. But, but we don't baptize children. We don't think that this passage teaches it because what you do find here, particularly with the detail provided to the jailer's family, is they, they all believed and then were baptized. They all believed and then were baptized. And when you think about the symbol of baptism... It's a symbol that you personally identify with the death of Christ as you go under the water and His resurrection to new life, to be a new creation. Well, why why would someone go through that symbolism if they hadn't believed it? And so being baptized, baptism is important. Being baptized is important because it proclaims to the world, to the body, your belief in Christ. And it's an encouragement to us. It's not just about you believing and following God. It's about us being reminded of the gospel that that along with you, in Christ, we died to our sin and rose again to be a new creation, as 2 Corinthians says. So it's a reminder and an encouragement to everyone who witnesses it. And I'll guarantee that Paul and Silas were stoked to get to baptize this man's whole family as they had believed him and saved. So it's a symbol of what had already occurred in their hearts. The conclusion of the story here in Philippi begins in verse 35. It says, When it was daylight, the magistrates set their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without trial, even though we are Roman citizens. And and then threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. The New Skeet International Version says they were scared. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting that they leave the city. After Paul and Silas had come out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, and there they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. So I want to kind of walk through what happens here. 
They go to the jailer and they say, okay, these guys have had enough. We beat them down pretty good, left them overnight in the Huskow to think about things. Now, get rid of them. Let them go. You guys leave town and we'll forget this ever happened. And Paul says, yeah, I don't think so. Paul says, you guys beat us without trial, without due process, without any kind of hearing. And we're Roman citizens, which guess what? You can't touch me. And immediately the magistrates, the officials are scared because they know that they've made a real boo-boo. That you can't do that and that to do that will get you in some big trouble. And so they go, why don't you guys just go quietly? And they said, no, I don't think we will. I think we're going to go see our friends first. And you can escort us if you'd like. And then I think you can escort us out of town. Can we get the the cars, the, the, the motorcycle sheriffs to go ahead of us with the sirens so that we make sure no one impedes our progress out of the city? And so they leave the town. What we find here is some really exciting things that, that just all come together. These three stories, the story of Lydia and her conversion, the story of, of Paul and Silas being arrested and thrown into jail for, um, for casting a demon out of the slave girl, and the story of, of them being removed from the city and how they left. We find three things come together that, that I find pretty helpful for us maybe to bring this all to a close. What we find is people giving everything they have for the honor and glory of Christ and the advancement of the gospel, whatever it is they have. We find Lydia providing her home and hosting things, providing her resources that she has so that the gospel could advance, so that the people would be encouraged, so the church would have a place to meet. I guarantee when they met, there was dinner served and that Lydia's family was a part of that. She had some means and she used them for the church, for the gospel to advance so that Jesus would be seen as great and worshipped. We find Paul using his citizenship, using his position to provide a degree of protection for the church. I will guarantee you that the magistrates were a little more gracious to the church in Philippi than some of the other cities because they knew Paul had dirt on And they're a little scared and they rush to appease the apostles. And so he uses his position for God's glory, for the advancement of the gospel. And so some of you guys are looking at you, I don't have many resources, I don't have much position, what am I supposed to do? Well, this is the third story, this is the one that that I see so powerful, is watching Paul and Silas in prison, where they give their suffering to the glory of God. So you don't have position, you don't have resources, do you have suffering? Have you ever suffered? Have you gone through difficulty or hardship? Did you know you can do that in such a way that the gospel advances? When people see that Jesus is more important than this world and what it has to offer by the way you trust in Him through suffering, that is believable. Because when all the cards are down and I see someone standing firm on their faith, I see right away that there's validity to it. That's a part of the story of how I came to to trust in the gospel. I saw my parents go through intense suffering as about a 10 and 11 year old child and watch them rely on Christ. And then it quit being a Sunday school lesson and started being something real. I would expect that there's a good number of you here that came to faith in Christ because of the testimony of someone who suffered well as they endured by placing their faith in Jesus and trusting Him. So you don't have position you don't have resources. Have you suffered? Every scar has a story, right? 
Everything you've been through, that God's carried you through, is so that His love could be seen through you. Now, that's not the only answer. I don't have all the answers to the why questions, but I want to tell you this is a real possibility. That when you suffer, when you trust in Christ, when He is your bedrock, all of a sudden the gospel becomes believable to an unbelieving world. Years later, Paul wrote a letter to this church in Philippi. And in it, he talked about his suffering and how he had endured. And in Philippians 3, verse 7, this is what he says after having lost everything. He says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. This one he says, he says, I've lost everything. This church knows that Paul has suffered. They've witnessed it firsthand. Who knows? Maybe some of the guards that, that had, had beaten him. Maybe some of the other people in the jail system. Maybe they had become Christians through this jailer. And Paul writes to them and says, I've suffered and I've lost everything. And they go, you know what? He has. He has suffered. And he says, I don't, I don't care. Everything that I've lost is trash compared to knowing Jesus. That's all I want. When Jesus is your greatest treasure, when He is your deepest joy, when He is your only hope, then the gospel is believable. And for some of us, it takes suffering to get there. So what do you have that you could give so the gospel advances and so that God will be honored and glorified? I don't know what it is, but I suspect somewhere you have some resources, something. You may not think it's much. You may not think you can do much. But what God has given you, He expects you to be faithful in. And that means everything. That, that means finances, guys. That means our gifts, abilities, time, energy. Whatever God has given us. The greatest joy is to see the gospel advance. And so, use it. Don't belittle what He's given you for His glory. Use it. Maybe you have position. Maybe you're in a place in this world of authority. Use it for God's glory. Wield that authority well in a way that honors God. Some of you guys are in the midst of some storms. Use it well. Trust in Him. Let the world see that He is your greatest joy, your only hope. And watch Him move. We're in a time of worship here in a minute. And what I would ask you to do as we sing, as we pray, that you would look to God. And that you would ask Him to search your heart to, to show you where it is you have not loved Him fully. To show you what you have that you've been afraid to use. Or you, maybe you've belittled the gift that He's given you to give you the strength and wisdom to begin to use what God has given you for His glory, for the gospel to advance. And if you're struggling, that you'd cry out to Him for strength, that you'd place your trust and your hope in Him, 
that like the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, you would say that I find Christ to be better than everything. That I consider everything trash compared to knowing Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that, Lord, by the suffering of Your saints, many of us have come to see the truth of the Gospel. Lord, I know that for me and for many in this room, the Gospel has become real, tangible, and believable because we've seen other people live it out in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. And I would pray that today you would make this body, the believers in this room, strong by your Spirit so that we can endure the days of head, whatever they hold, with faith, with joy knowing that knowing your Son is better than life, it's better than anything. I pray that that eternal joy would would just exude from us so that this unbelieving world would see it and believe the gospel. I pray that you would give us all, Lord, a desire to use everything we have with all the passion and might and strength that we have to see the gospel advance, to see people saved and renewed, changed. Lord, to see those that we love here changed by your Spirit, to see us changed by your spirit, that we would see over and over again lives radically transformed by the power of the gospel and that that would be our, Lord, our greatest passion. Lord, we ask for your hand upon this body in this time of worship. We pray that your spirit would move freely in this place, that he would lift up and encourage, that he would convict and humble all according to our need. We trust you. We thank you for the love your son poured out on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.